0: This episode of African Tech Conversations is brought to you by GoDaddy. Buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% at trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. That's trygodaddy.com forward slash Tech. Ethiopian-born Solomon Assefa is the director of IBM Research in Africa. He's responsible for IBM's research labs in Kenya and South Africa, where he oversees the development of technologies that aim to transform key industries and address the continent's grand challenges. As a research scientist, Solomon has spent a lot of time at IBM working on nanophotonics technology. His research contributions include high-speed optical detectors, nanostructured platforms for biosensing, and quantum information processing. He's co-authored over 150 publications, has over 50 patents, holds a PhD from MIT, and is an honorary professor at Witts University in South Africa. This is African Tech Conversations. Dr. Solomon Osefa, thank you so much for being on the African Tech Conversations series. Thank you very much. Nice to have you here at the lab. Awesome, man. Um, I thought it might be an interesting way to start by um, a little observation I made by looking on the outside of this building. There's a massive sign uh, that says Think on the outside, being a Think Lab, I guess it makes sense. Um, I'd like you to think back to a time in your childhood when uh, not taking enough time out to think, think through a situation, um, led to some unfortunate consequence and i I want you to think as far back as possible maybe to your childhood i don't know your college years maybe further back
1: and that's a tough question (laughs) i guess i have to take time to really think even now
0: yes or or maybe that makes you a thinker generally (laughs) yeah
1: an unfortunate
0: situation so perhaps in your in your childhood on a playground somewhere at school at home a miscalculation maybe a rushed decision
1: you know I've always been very very calm. Even when I was a kid, I was one of those kids who just really took my time uh before making a decision or rushing. Even uh even when I play, when I walk, uh, it's kind of has always been ingrained in, in me to to just take time and be very calm. So uh it's tough to, you know, pinpoint one But maybe I would say in my college years, right, uh, you know how it is. You know, I was born and raised in Mm -hmm. Ethiopia. And then the first year I went to Boston, one of those cold nights. uh, You know, like sometimes you stay up very late to study. So you pull one of those all-nighters. Perhaps I should have taught it a little bit better because the next day uh, I actually ended up missing my exam. (laughs) You overslept. (laughs) I overslept. And I went in and caught the
0: exam 15 minutes before it was over. Did you Did you try and make the best of the time you had?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I still made it.
0: <laughs> no flipping way. Okay, so we've got an overachiever on our hand.
1: So, yeah, I mean, I, it worked out somehow, but maybe that was one of the things where I should have, you know, stopped and thought and said, hey, you know, I'm not sure about this weather, you know, the snow, running in the snow, literally, you know, waking up and rushing to the classroom and, the, you know, like banging on the door, opening, you know, you have this professor uh, who's like surprised to see me there. And then, you know, I, I need my exam, <laughs> and <then laughs> going and writing the exam. So maybe that's, you know, I should have, I could have done it a little bit better, but it, w- it all worked out.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, I suppose it's not so much an unfortunate consequence, but it's certainly something you'd want to do better next time. Yeah.
1: yeah. I think uh, perhaps, you know, more organization and, you know, thinking about, you know, even the small decisions like that, you know, like saying, you know, like I did it out of, like, goodwill in a sense, like, yes, you know, I want to achieve and so, like, you know, study hard and so forth. But it's one of those things where, you know, it could have been planned better.
0: <laughs> so tell me about growing up in Ethiopia. Now it's, I mean, the the birthplace of coffee. Um, it's this incredible legacy. This country was such an incredible legacy. Coffee is just one of, probably one of the lighter things that makes Ethiopia such a rich historical landscape and and what's growing up in Ethiopia like give me a sense of what that was like for you
1: I mean full of culture right so a lot and obviously coffee by the talking about coffee I started drinking when I was I think six or five that's just part of the whole cultural coffee ceremony and so forth and today I had my triple shot already so
0: no way but do you do it the traditional way do you do it do you do like yeah whenever I get a chance I do that at home
1: but you know Uh, like today it was just the usual espresso but growing up I mean again I'm a lot of culture right so you're like uh, immersed in the whole history in a sense Ethiopia is almost like uh, frozen in time right you know you go out on Sundays people dressed in their you know traditional clothes white going to church mosque wherever they're going Uh, so on one hand it's almost like stuck uh, you know like but at the same time, you see all these big, you know, high rises coming up. So you do see that pool, you know, between, you know, civilization as well as old history, how you, you preserve that.
0: So, And which part of the spectrum did you come up in? What sort of family were you in? Were you in one of those traditional families where if I taken a photo of, of your family, it would just, it would feel like, you know, the... The, the 1800s or did you come up in maybe a more modern family that espoused the other side of what's what's happening in Ethiopia
1: so I would I would say both right so my mom and dad I mean they're kind of you know from the old traditional side um, you know not educated you know maybe up to fourth grade or so uh, and my mom housewife so it's very traditional at home but at the same time you know my brothers and sisters were you know going to school you know my parents made sure that you know they went to school and uh, made made something for themselves so the kids always uh you know like you know including my eldest brother he made sure that we caught up with the modern times so so it's it's both i i would say
0: and so at which point in your in your life did you leave ethiopia because you obviously studied you said you studied in boston at which point um and how was that decision made Well, I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship when I finished
1: my high school. Uh, After 12th grade, you know, I had applied, uh, taken all the SAT exams and all the other exams, and fortunately, I was admitted to MIT. So I was just turning 17 then. So that was the main reason why I left. Before that, I never left uh, the country.
0: Is the hype around MIT deserved? I mean, I've heard a lot. I've never visited. I've met quite a few professionals that have come out of that system. I mean, there's a plethora of of amazing startup founders and and innovators that have come out of of that institution. Uh, Is is the sort of hype that's just, I mean, that surrounds the institution deserved? It's not a hype, it's a reality. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) So, no, it
1: is real. I mean, you go in and, you know, you just immerse yourself amongst these brilliant kids, uh, you know, overachievers coming in. Some of them are like fourteen years old and know how to code and you know, know quantum physics and I, I mean it's just an amazing space. And you know, it's also very international, you know, people coming from all across the world. And then, you know, talking about the professors, right? You know, you have so many I mean brilliant professors well respected in the academic community willing to engage with the youth you know you can just walk into anybody's office and talk to them about any technical discussion that you want to have so uh, and of course i mean if you look at the output of the institution as well a lot of startups a lot of companies you know a lot of big leaders in big companies as well a lot of well respected professors going to other universities so it's really it's not a hype it's uh, you know it's an amazing place And why did you go to
0: MIT to study?
1: It's kind of interesting, actually. Initially, I started, uh, you know, first year, I wanted to do electrical engineering. And then I realized that I didn't like the black box approach. I wanted to go in depth into the fundamentals. So I switched over to physics for two years, finished that, and came back to engineering. So it's a mix of engineering and uh, uh, physics. Uh, That's my background. But ultimately, for PhD... I also carved out a space where, you know, it's an intersection of physics, electrical engineering, and material science. So it's a combination. So I had advisors from the different disciplines. And so did you stay with MIT through, throughout your p- post-grad? Yeah, I, n- I never felt it to be necessary to even go leave uh, MIT
0: and do an internship. All of my internships were on campus. And I mean, this is going to be a hard question for you to answer. And, and also given how uh, you went to MIT on a scholarship program. Um, but is there any negative rub as far as the elite uh, vibe around some of, you know, the, the, certainly the, the Ivy Leagues in the U.S. and and perhaps some of the more prominent universities even here on the continent and, and how difficult it is either to get in uh, or to afford them? Um, do you ever feel that there's ever a negative uh, aspect to that to, to that scenario
1: yeah i mean the, the interesting thing about mit is i think people were extremely technical it's almost like a level uh ground for everyone to play if you're good then you get to play so i, I would say unlike many other schools there you didn't sense that elitist kind of you know um atmosphere you didn't feel it that much
0: so it was less about it was it was less about the fact that your 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 father and your grandfather went there and stuff
1: but i think there are other universities where that culture exists if i had gone to those type of schools it would have made it difficult especially given my background where i came from you know coming from the continent and from a poor background uh, it probably could have made it a little bit difficult to fit in but fortunately at mit it's about your capabilities and what you can do and are you proactive are you a go-getter that's what mattered
0: i suppose if you're talented enough especially in today's day and age uh you can pre- i mean your work can speak for itself and open doors in in ways that perhaps wouldn't have happened say in the 1980s or the 70s Yeah, there is that and also if you are proactive
1: enough and smart enough even in this elitist institutions i would say that there are quite a lot of uh, supporting uh, you know structures and functions that will allow you to survive it's just a matter of knowing what you want, and going and working with the right people so that they give, they give you the right support.
0: And do you think the democratization of education that we're seeing because of the Internet is going to disrupt the the, the, the status quo as far as you know, higher education is concerned and, and institutions, not just MIT, but institutions in general are, are concerned? I mean, you, you're within proximity to arguably one of the most prominent universities on the continent, Vitz University here in you know, Silicon Brom um do you see, what, what do you see over the next maybe five ten years in terms of uh how you know acquiring the level of expertise in a technical field like you have how different that might be for 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 a millennial generation yes i
1: I think you know MOOCs and you know online education is definitely changing you know how people enable and educate themselves, so it's definitely transforming and uh also kind of makes you wonder. Um, basically i mean if you for example if you want to become a data scientist right do you necessarily need to go into a four-year you know college Um, perhaps not right if you have the right level of you know skills in coding and then if you can upskill yourself using some of the online courses over like you know a couple of months then you know you can specialize in specific areas so kind of you know micro skills are becoming more and more important i think in this age as well, So it's definitely changing, transforming. Uh, so I don't know where it will be in five years, but it's changing. Yeah.
0: And so what is the biggest difference, do you think, I mean, uh, in terms of how Ethiopia has changed? Um, let's talk socioeconomically uh, first and then in terms of the the tech ecosystem and, and 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 ethiopia's place in that in africa's tech ecosystem what are the biggest changes that have changed since you were a child dreaming about uh, attending mit versus where we are today i think the biggest change is infrastructure
1: a little bit more stability as well political environment has changed uh, Also, if you look at the economy as well, I think it's one of the fastest growing economies on the continent, right? So, I don't know if it's double-digit GDP growth, but uh, so, and of course, infrastructure. You know, you go back every six months, you see a lot of change in the infrastructure. So, my hope is all of this will come together to, you know, further enable the youth, which means that they get better education, they get better jobs, and, you know, they they get to live a good life. So I hope, uh, I think it's going in that direction, but we'll see. Now, in terms of the tech ecosystem, I think there's a lot more that we could do. The universities are still transforming and, you know, you don't see the startup and, you know, entrepreneurship culture that you witness in South Africa and in Kenya and so forth. So, uh, but I think over time, it's going to change.
0: And on a personal level, what have you observed in your in your own life, uh in the life of your family? You've got a unique experience, at least unique to mine, uh, in as far as that's concerned. I'm a second generation uh professional and um that comes with its own burdens <laughs> as an as a young African and you know, the expectation to just a bit grow on what your parents have done and them, you know, being the first to get out of a really bad situation or a tough situation, um, you're the first generation as far as that's concerned. Not just, not I can't speak to whether your, your parents were, were struggling or not, but certainly I think their level of education speaks to their exposure, etc. What have you seen in terms of you know, your family's adaptation to all the changes and, and their reaction to the sort of massive scientist data expert you've become?
1: Well, I, I would say actually they're smarter than the kids because they invested very well. They diversified, right? <laughs> they had, however, like six kids, seven kids, and, you know, they made sure they invested in the kids, which ultimately is paying dividends for them, right? So they're being well taken care of. But I would say that um, it, it's interesting. I mean, I think they adapted very well, starting from our eldest when he finished, you know, college and, you know, became a lawyer. That changed, the, uh, you know, life of the family but they've always kind of tried to understand some of the trends that are happening which you know the kids bring into the family never really resisted the changes you know like so they've done well in terms of uh
0: adapting and how typical is a story like yours this really i mean uh like this amazing arc i mean it's almost like uh Uh, worthy of like uh, someone writing a script about it and 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 how, how typical is that um because i mean there are huge assumptions that are made when people listen to podcasts like this around the world and think wow this could be everyone's story or perhaps um you're like one of a million where do you feature
1: i don't think i'm one in a million i think this is a story of almost you know millions of you know kids and young people it's just perhaps I've been fortunate enough to to get a little bit of spotlight, right? But I mean, I have, you know, many friends who have, you know, have similar stories. And if you look at, you know, my generation, at least the generation uh, in Ethiopia, I mean, you know, so the the transition that happened in the government. And so we, we, it left us at the same place. And somehow we had to, you know, uh, overcome that challenge. Some of us got opportunities to go abroad, you know, get educated and, you know, come back. Actually, I have many friends who went and went back to Ethiopia. So there's many of these stories.
0: And so what is typically the most frustrating uh, stereotype you encounter uh, in people who, once they find out you're from one from Africa, two from Ethiopia, um, tend to assume about who you are or what Africa is like or what Ethiopia is like?
1: I mean, there's obviously a lot of stereotypes. I think, you know, initially, even, you know, curiosity and, you know, wanting to go into the engineering and physics field, you know, I've had questions as to why would you want to do that, you know? As opposed to? Exactly. As opposed to what? I mean, well, people say, oh, just just go into financial services or just go do this and that. Uh, I've even been asked, you know, when I wanted to do my PhD, um... Why would you want to do PhD? Just go get a job, right? So I think there's a lot of stereotypes in terms of uh, how far we could potentially go. But I think now you hear so many of these quote-unquote success stories, that's changing. And also, I think the reason why this narrative is changing is also what's happening on the continent. If you look at, again, I mean, many countries, you know, doing very well economically, more stability, and everyone looking at the continent and saying, look, you know, where else can we invest but on the continent? that That's where the biggest opportunities exist, billions of people. So that whole narrative is changing. And I think with that also, many of the stereotypes will disappear.
0: And so uh, you're the director of IBM uh, Research here on the continent. Um, and if I have it correctly, your role is to oversee IBM's research labs in Kenya and South Africa. Uh, and that involves, you know, hitting up the, the company's research strategy and partnerships across the African continent. Now, um, we're currently in the recently launched research lab in uh, in Bromfontein, Johannesburg. What happens here?
1: A lot of uh, research and innovation. Um, For whom? Well, so our main mandate and our priority is to tackle... Africa's grand challenges and also identify local challenges where, you know, we can use the latest cognitive computing technologies, Internet of Things to solve those problems. So really, technologies that will be scalable, that will, make, that will be commercially viable, but that will also have impact on human lives. Locally, we want to focus on local problems because those local problems actually lead to big commercial opportunities as well.
0: So does a facility like this run on IBM's global sort of R&D budget or are there clients that specifically um, uh, task you with researching into, into separate areas? Do you, do you partner with certain entities in order to, to, to excavate certain areas? How, what's the model of a site like this? It's a mix of all of
1: that, right? So we have 12 labs across the world. So we have a worldwide research strategy you know, we want to advance cognitive computing. That's one of the big areas where we have made, you know, big breakthroughs in other labs. So we're doing the same here as well. Specifically, I mean, we're using, for example, the data from Square Kilometer Array to advance cognitive computing, just as an example, right? So that's kind of a global agenda. But also locally, I mean, we partner with the DST, we partner with the CSIR, we partner with VITS, and we define... uh, problems or you know research programs we feel are relevant locally and we tackle that together so it's all about partnership and ecosystems
0: and so you've mentioned one uh you know one project um what are some of the the most profound research findings you've made so far or technologies you've developed you know since assuming this role we have made not personally i mean obviously the the, the research team yeah
1: we've been fortunate enough to, you know, like within a year, gather a very brilliant, you know, team of scientists, and they're already making a lot of progress. For example, uh, the work that we're doing in terms of understanding cancer metastasis is very worthwhile of mentioning, right? So we're trying to understand, we look at, you know, molecular networks and see how cancer, you know, from uh, primary cancer, can spray through the body and, you know... Can we actually predict which organ it goes to and so forth, which is, you know, groundbreaking, right? Um, Also, the work that we are doing in TB, tuberculosis, trying to use, you know, sensors, Internet of Things, trying to understand how, you know, it spreads, you know, who are the super connectors, and what are the trends and so forth. I find that to be also extremely relevant and important. And again, I mean, the machine learning uh, work that we're doing, advancing frontiers of machine learning using data from the SKA. So, you know, like we expect exabytes of data per day in a couple of years. So that means that you have to innovate new algorithms so that you can actually make sense out of that massive amount of data.
0: Please explain to someone who's not familiar with the SKA what it is and, 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 I mean, because I mean, it's it's been covered quite quite a bit. How I mean, there's this extensive amount of data that um, Africa doesn't seem to have the capacity to to process fast enough to make sense of fast enough. So, uh, explain to someone who might not be familiar with with that particular project.
1: So, the Square Kilometre Array project or SKA is an international project. Uh, so, there's two sites where the radio antennas will be installed. One is South Africa, and another is in Australia. Now, in South Africa, it's actually one of the big priority research areas for the Department of Science and Technology. So there, w- there will be about 3,000 of uh, these uh, dishes, you know, in the Karoo. So what those dishes are doing is looking at, you know, the sky and trying to understand the origin of the universe. Right? So so this is a huge, massive um, scientific exploration. It actually makes me very proud that, you know, uh, it's a pan african initiative across you know 10 countries ultimately and the fact that africa is leading such a big scientific initiative just imagine th- the same way uh, as you know the supercomputer or hlc where so many massive discoveries have been made like the boson and, and so forth right so it's that big of a scientific challenge and and that's that's what scientists from the SK south africa organisation in collaboration with scientists from the IBM Research
0: Africa are working on so in, you know in helping people understand what IBM does you know in wrapping our minds around what they, they do, um, I feel like IBM is one of those tech companies that is embedded in various aspects of our everyday life you know without most people even being aware of it and um, you know share some examples of how IBM helps improve the lives of you know the average uh, man or woman on the streets or at home or in the workplace or say you know nairobi or lagos or johannesburg
1: yeah well you know if you look at you know how cities operate for example quite a lot of the decision uh support systems or you know the systems that enable city officials to make day-to-day decisions you know we have quite a lot to do with
0: that in, in support of the city of Joburg, for example
1: so we work quite closely with the city for example if you look at you know how they run their you know uh, air quality monitoring stations you know we have developed a system for them if you look into um monitoring of crime uh you know again i mean uh, some of, some of our systems are being used in running those day-to-day activities uh in some of the healthcare systems as well you know we so we have quite a lot of you know it infrastructure you know cloud infrastructure that cities officials and companies and clients use
0: in terms of the consumer aspect of IBM's business, I mean, uh, there definitely seems to be a shift, and cr- correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a shift towards uh, enterprise solutions, uh, you know, consulting to government, and uh, uh, th- those kind of soft solutions, uh, as opposed to sort of the things that we'd expect to have in our hands, like a smartphone or, or some kind of device. Is that a, is that, am I right in saying that's been an intentional shift for IBM?
1: Yes. Uh, by the way, for example, I mean, you just showed your, your uh, iPhone, right? So we, we partner with Apple, Right So we are very good when it comes to working with enterprise you know businesses, uh, but also we partner with companies that are very good in terms of you know consumer reach as well. Um, if you look at one one very good example is in South Africa. I mean if you look at you know many of the big banks, almost all of them use our uh, you know mainframes, right They use our i.t. solutions and cloud solutions. So we deal quite a lot with enterprise. But also through partnerships,
0: uh, we indirectly impact you know, uh, consumers. Back in 1943, uh, the then president of IBM, a guy called Thomas Watson, famously declared the following, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so in your opinion, what are some of the most profound miscalculations currently being made about the future of Africa's tech and innovation scene?
1: oh that's that's a tough question
0: i mean may, maybe it's stuff that you see come up and think pieces on the, on the regular or um you you hear um, spoken about at conferences or you overhear in in strategy rooms and you're thinking nah, nah or maybe when you visit overseas and you clearly meet people who might be out of touch with where things are going what are some of the major miscalculations or perhaps not so major I wouldn't
1: characterize it as uh, miscalculation. I think everybody realizes the potential of the continent now. You know, if you look at the demogra- demographic shift and if you look at stability and so forth. Perhaps um, one common theme that I see is every everybody thinks that you know just because of uh, mobile phone penetration, that seems to solve all the problems of Africa, and there is too much talk about that without in-depth thinking of how exactly, like what kind of solutions are we going to deliver on those mobile phones, you know? Just uh, some simple apps um, on phones. I I don't think that will change how the continent operates or I don't think it will impact, you know, lives of individuals. You need to go to the next level and say, how are those apps actually going to help, you know, Uh, someone's life change how are they going to help them earn above the poverty line so i would love to see a little bit more of in depth uh, thinking about some of the solutions that are being created than just you know you know kind of you know press releases and hype and you know you know how how it is on the news cycle so all of a sudden you know there's a startup you know there's a big you know press event and then that app disappears without it getting traction so, that's so,
0: so it's almost an uh, it's almost an over uh, an over enthusiasm a misplaced enthusiasm maybe yes, yes, yes a little bit of that yes Yeah, because i mean we can't deny it's so i mean the demographics do suggest that's where we're going um but it's always interesting to me covering the, the scene how overstated for example just how many people actually have smartphones in their hands to start with you know i mean in south africa what are we three four out of ten you know south africans and that's what, and we leave really the continent uh, as, as far as that's concerned. Also, the definition of smartphone uh, refers to anything that is web-enabled, not, not necessarily something super clever like an iPhone or a Galaxy or something.
1: Another thing too, I think uh, to add to that is uh, again, I mean, saying yeah, you know, some simple solutions will improve people's lives. From my perspective, actually, I mean, exponential technologies are the ones that we should target. Like when we talk about cognitive computing and impacting individuals, I, I really believe in that because if you really want to leapfrog, you need to have new thinking. What is that technology that's going to dramatically you know, change how you run your day-to-day life, how you make your life kind of economically viable, how you run your business? I think we need to think about the impact of The latest technologies, like you know, what's the impact of machine learning? What's the impact of Internet of Things? Uh, So we we need to be on that exponential curve, than always saying, oh yeah, you know, like phones will solve solve our problems. It's much more than that.
0: So tell me um, how some you know a a junior a junior tech person or some you know someone new to the industry, perhaps coming straight out of varsity, perhaps. where you were when you first, you know, you graduated with your first degree at MIT is listening to you and says, okay, I, I buy into that. Um, I want to s- put all my energies into promoting exponential technologies and, and not just surfing, you know, hype waves. Um, where does a person like that start, practically speaking, do you think, in terms of getting stuck in? I think a lot of uh, these technologies, if you want to learn about it,
1: are it goes back to our previous discussion, they're available. I mean, you just need to go into some of these online courses and try to you know, explore, learn in depth, and also you know, go to some of this, you know, the innovation hubs and you know, try, go and talk to some professors. So you just need to be a bit more proactive in terms of you know, going and uh, learning about these technologies. But all of this information is really available everywhere you are.
0: And so, you know, over the years, you know, various prophets of doom have predicted the demise of, of IBM and others, you know, other you know incumbents in the field, uh, you know, in many times in, in the company's history, IBM has seemed to struggle, you know, to deal with change and innovate and... You know how how would you say IBM is working to maintain relevance in the wake of major stars dropping out of the skies, it were you know your your Nokia's mm-hmm. and Blackberries and Kodaks. You know what is IBM doing to ensure that they they don't become another case study in an MBA in an uh, MBA <laughs> textbook?
1: Will never be that because I mean we have we're like a 104 or 105 year old company now, and we have transformed a couple of times right, and. Many of the technologies that actually led to revolutions in the IT industry were invented uh, by IBM. And we're not sure about inventing these new technologies, even if it means that it could lead to our own disruption. Right? So we go ahead and invent because it's good for humanity, it's good for everyone. Now, in terms of us being relevant, if you look at IBM now, we're a cloud company. Right? A cloud, A cognitive company, all of our solutions delivered over the cloud, right? So and we have successfully transformed into that, uh in the last, you know, five, ten years. So it's it's kind of changes in in our DNA.
0: And so you, you mentioned disruption, uh you know, do you feel that IBM is sufficiently diversified to be safe from that or sufficiently large enough to to sort of uh survive even periods of like lean periods where perhaps they you know the company might behind be behind the curve. Um and what's the company's attitude towards uh buying in some of the, the the innovation that maybe isn't coming up organically within the organization? Well it is. So so
1: that's the thing. What makes IBM very unique is the fact that we have IBM research, you know the technologies that we develop in IBM research, they're ten, twenty years, you know, ahead of the curve, right? So, a lot of changes that you see in the IT industry, as well as the transformation of IBM, pivots back to research. Like, look at cognitive computing. That came out of IBM research. I don't know if you know about Jeopardy, you know, like the quiz show and
0: how Watson came to, you know, was announced, right? I'm familiar with it, but that's a really good, I think that's a really great example of a key moment. Yeah. One of my, you know, <laughs> one of my mentors would put it that way. One of, A key moment for the business. Break it down for our listeners.
1: So, So, Watson was one of the grand challenges within IBM Research. There were a couple of scientists working on it, and, you know, they're developing a lot of technologies related to cognitive, which, which encompasses, you know, obviously uh, n- uh, natural language processing, machine learning, and many other cognitive, you know, technologies, right? So, and, you know, it started as a small team, but then it expanded. It became a big grand challenge. It grew, and, you know, the Watson was able to defeat uh, you know, the champions of the Jeopardy quiz show, right? And that really announced the new era of cognitive computing. And, and you know, now you see all the other companies kind of, you know, buying into that. And there's a big transformation, right? You hear a lot about, you know, deep learning, machine learning, and how that's transforming industries. But really, it goes back to the moment when, you know, Watson won that quiz show. So, I mean, the reason I mentioned that is to show that, Because IBM is unique because we have this big, you know, research institution that's always ahead of the curve. So, and that leads to our transformation. So, uh, and we have a lot of innovations coming out of it.
0: And so, I'm sure you're sensitive to the inherent risks uh, of the trend towards cloud computing, machine learning, uh, particularly, I mean, some high profile, uh, you know, individuals, not least South Africa's own Elon Musk, you know, uh, declaring his, you know, his fears about how... We could potentially mishandle this point in our history if we're not careful. Uh, and in given IBM's commitment to this area, what are some of the, the the bigger risks in your own mind, and and how is IBM going about mitigating them?
1: Look, I, I mean, our view of cognitive computing is uh, it's something where you know the human is always in the loop. It's uh, technologies that will assist humans make better decisions. Humans make. Uh, Become more efficient, right? And there's always this discussion about, you know, could it lead to job losses? We think that it could actually lead to more jobs, you know, even types of jobs that we, we don't even know about, right? So, and then there's always the question of, you know, um, what if the machines take over the world? Something that comes out of Hollywood. But even in that front, right? Uh, two weeks ago or a week ago, we had an announcement where you know, IBM, Microsoft, I think Google, Amazon, all of those companies came together and created a foundation so that we can talk more openly about the ethical questions behind, you know, cognitive computing and AI. Um, So, um, I mean, yeah, I think all of the risks that that you're referring to, they're out in the open and they're being openly discussed. In my view, especially in the context of uh, the African uh, continent, I think we need to harness the power of AI, uh, this exponential technology, so that we can leapfrog and, uh, you know, we can improve lives impact lives. I mean, look at uh, healthcare. I mean, there's so much that we need to do. I mean, we need to make our hospitals more efficient, our doctors more effective. And if you can harness cognitive computing... Uh, or natural uh, natural language processing to look at pathology reports and automate it quickly, understand the statistics of you know disease occurrences across the continent, and then be able to really you know understand where to allocate resources i mean that 's a big win right so the advantages in my mind outweigh the risks, especially in the context of the continent so i 'm
0: going to apply my Hollywood imagination to the example you just gave so this is this beautifully the smart hospital, basically is what you've just described, could also potentially be the way uh, one of my enemies decides to hack my pacemaker and take me out. And <laughs> I know this is a <laughs> so. So I say this in jest, of course, but I mean, uh, which is the segue to my next question around what I consider the biggest risk around the trend towards cloud um, is is security. And 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 the integrity of, secu- of 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 information and and uh, the challenges around uh, uh, you know maintaining security in an increasingly unsafe uh, digital world. Yeah. Well, y-
1: yes. I mean, we hear quite a lot about that on the news, but at the same time, I mean, it's just that you don't hear about the ninety nine point nine nine cases where you know advanced security softwares have uh, thwarted those type of attacks so i think we're making quite a lot of progress especially i mean we work in the inter- enterprise space and we're quite uh, adept at that you know so we have a lot of solutions that tackle those type of problems
0: we're taking a short break to let you know that godaddy makes registering domain names fast simple and affordable godaddy is the world's largest domain registrar and is trusted by over 13 million customers around the globe they provide everything you need to get your business set up online, including award-winning 24-7 support. Now, to save 30% on a new domain name or to use any of their other services, go to trygodaddy.com forward slash African Tech. Again, that's trygodaddy.com forward slash Tech to save 30%. And now, back to the conversation. And so, you know, given your strategic role for IBM in the region, I imagine you interact uh, with, you know, contemporaries who manage similar uh, uh, sites around the world. You mentioned earlier, what pain points do you have in common with, with individuals who, who, who run research labs in other parts of the world? What pain points do you have in common with them and which ones are unique to, to the continent? In this case, you know, South Africa and Kenya, where um, you guys have labs. Locally, you know,
1: you have to spend time forming an ecosystem. I think uh, it's not something that happens overnight. So you have to have the right types of partnerships. uh, You have to have the right type of uh, skills and talent and the right type of network. It requires a bit of patience to have impact and to grow and to tackle the the right type of problems, right? So I would say locally that's, you know, forming the right ecosystem and convincing people that research is important and that sometimes research takes more than you know like a few months you know you have to invest on it and you pay you know you get the dividend in a couple of years so that you know type of change in mentality is a bit of a pain point but i think uh, like in south africa and kenya we have created so much excitement um and i think it's going very well
0: and then what do you uh, what do you have in common with the other labs or other leaders? Is that? Yes, with the other labs.
1: I think it's just, I mean, you know, you have to continuously work with universities to make sure that you have, you know, the right type of uh, talent pipeline. Is it competitive? It is. I mean, look, sometimes, you know, working in science and technology or STEM is not depicted as the sexiest kind of profession, right? So we all struggle with that. I mean, making sure that, you know, young kids are interested, and that we have the right pipeline is, I think, something that all of us uh, not struggle with, but something that we're conscious of.
0: Now, what emerging t- tech trends are you most excited about at a personal level outside of what you do for IBM? Uh, you know, uh, what's big this year in terms of our ecosystem? I suppose fintech is yeah. the massive thing, VOD, med tech, you know, mo- mobile money, I suppose that's fintech. Yeah. I, I, I'm just trying to think of, what's just typically trended week after week after week in in you know on our show on, on our sister show, The African Tech Roundup. But um I don't know. What what's what's trend is tickling yeah, well, your I'm fancy? Kind of excited about Internet of Things at the moment
1: and the connection of Internet of Things to cognitive platforms. You're trying to get into my heart make I, my my <laughs> You're trying to get into my <laughs> The reason that actually I became more and more excited about it is because even like the simple project that we did on uh T-re-close is tracking how it spreads, you know. We worked with a, a local startup actually hosted here by Professor Barry. They, you know, we were Professor Barry Doloski? Yes, from Vitz University. And, uh, you know, we created a small sensor. Again, I'm mean, working with like a small startup. And it just changed our thinking on how we were approaching the whole uh, question of contact tracing. How do you actually, you know, trace... How TB spreads and who's infecting whom, and so forth. And given that it's a big continent, I mean, I could see a very, very wide application of Internet of Things, be it in like, you know, environmental monitoring, uh, such as air quality, in traffic solutions, obviously in healthcare, uh, in many areas, in making our city smart. And embedding them, uh, you know, the sensors and, you know, that communicate and talk to each other as our infrastructure is going up. You know, Africa is being built at the moment. So this is the perfect
0: opportunity to embed this, you know, very
1: cheap yet smart sensors everywhere.
0: And how soon, do you, would you, how soon could something like that become a, a mainstream part of you know, the public health system uh, and, and, and go through the process of being costed in and, and implemented, do you think? Something so, as specific as what you've just yeah. described.
1: So, and that goes back to the challenge we discussed previously. I mean, it takes time for this to get traction. So we have to continuously engage the ecosystem, you know, government officials, you know, health officials, everyone so that they understand the benefits of such technologies even experimenting with them in a small scale so hopefully it won't take decades because by then <laughs> another technology would have come up and uh, so we'd be able to embed these technologies in the next couple of years
0: now i've read that uh you're a big fan of the area of nanophotonics uh and uh, that you've done a lot of great work in the space. What the heck is nanophotonics? <laughs> and what about that particular scientific area did you find so intriguing earlier on in your career? Yeah. Um, so that's actually, you know, my field
1: of expertise. That's where um, I uh, did a lot of research. So it's kind of interesting. I think, you know, when you're a kid, you think in kilometers, you know, how long you, you walk and meters and so forth, right? So when I went to MIT and, you know, started dabbling in physics and so forth, then all of a sudden you start thinking about, uh, you know, like in terms of, you know, micrometers. And then as you delve further and further, you start thinking about, you know, nanometers and angstroms, right? So, I mean, what intrigued me was basically the whole idea of how you can guide light, you know, harness light for communication. The fact that you can actually transmit information on a computer chip, Next to your transistors and have a very very effective way of communicating using photons instead of electrons, and you know creating those devices you know the the you know devices to detect light the devices to modulate light, switch it, and route it at a nanometer scale that intrigued me quite a bit, and that that's where I did a lot of work I mean we're talking about the diameter of you here is yeah about fifty microns here you know the structures that we're creating. They're a thousand times less than that. So imagine, you can't see them with your eyes. You actually have to use an electron microscope to really, you know, uh, look at those structures or to create them and so forth. So I just found it fascinating that you have, yet you have this, you know, micro scale world, but then there's also the micro kind of, you know, scale world where you can create, you know, "Quote unquote cities," you know, like you know, lights are being routed, electrons running around, and so I I, I found it to be fascinating.
0: Are there uh, technologies, everyday technologies, those kind of uh, this this sort these ideas are being implemented? Yes, I mean. Obviously, okay, so you know about
1: the fiber. fiber. I
0: was going to guess that, but I didn't want to sound silly on the... F- <laughs> but that's that,
1: you know, big scale, I mean, uh, level, right? But the direction we're going into is, for example, for the next generation supercomputers, I mean, there will be light being routed on the chips so that, you know, you can increase bandwidth of communication between the chips and so forth.
0: And also just shrink the size of the yeah. devices we use. Yes,
1: and ultimately, that hopefully will make it into the consumer electronics. Maybe the way you download... Uh, data from your phone onto your uh, computer will be using, you know, like a fiber plus this transceiver devices, you know, transmitter and receiver devices. So everything will be using lights. And you're talking about, you know, 100x or so, uh, uh, you know, increase in speed while you're decreasing, decreasing the power 10 or 100x down. So it's, you know, it's a technology that's uh, transforming the world.
0: I have these conspiracy theories about how um, at a consumer level, we're only enjoying really like, the 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 bottom of the barrel in terms of, of truly what's out there and what's possible, even currently, not even in terms of potential. Um, like, speak to that conspiracy theory, this idea that people like IBM and others are onto this incredible, incredible uh, futuristic world that could exist if they could figure out a way to, to roll it out affordably. Except so, that... So, but
1: that's, that's the point, right? So it's not really about the conspiracy. It's, it's a couple of things. One is... The price point you know you have to experiment with it long enough and you know tweak it and you know make it better so that the price is very very low for example going back to the nanophotonics work if you're using compound semiconductors the price is very very high so what we ended up doing was using silicon now silicon is at the heart of your computer chip and that industry has existed for over you know 40 years or so which means that how you make those chips is very cheap, right? So if you can use the same technology to create this, you know, non-photonic devices, then the price is going to be very, very low, right? That's one part of it. The other is also you got to make sure that these devices are stable, reliable, the packaging and
0: everything is working nicely. We can sell it profitably. <laughs> of course, <laughs> you see that's where the that's where the conspiracy theory kicks in. Where it's like, well, as soon as they figure out how to monetize this properly, you know, so, you know, then they'll do it. But I, I suppose to be fair, what, why do businesses exist?
1: Look, I mean, IBM invests what six percent of our uh, revenue into research, right? So we do have to make money so
0: that we can create the next, uh, you know, technologies that will change the world. And so i mean you've co authored uh, many academic papers on various subjects uh and, I mean my parents are academics, so I come from a world of uh, 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 from that world i'm i 'm I'm, I'm steeped in it but i'm also very conscious of the importance of being published in order to to be uh, to be meaningfully part of the global dialogue around technology and where it 's going and i think that's really important and that 's why I, I ask the question um, i mean of the fifty odd publications you've co-authored and authored etc um what are you most proud of in terms of you know uh, an academic paper you you put together i think i would say
1: i'm proud of uh, the work that we published in nature magazine on an avalanche photo detector it's kind of a groundbreaking work and uh, for me i think also you know well i was young then uh, what it taught me a big lesson, which is discoveries take a long time, and we really had to work very, very hard. It was, you know, uh, you what know. was it? What's the? Uh,
0: you said it's the it's avalanche
1: photo photo detectors.
0: So what was that?
1: It's basically a way of detecting, you know, photons. Uh, you know, a new way of detecting photons to to create a detector basically, and it's, it's a different mechanism than the u- usual, you know, kind of uh, photo detectors, but. The incredible amount of work that went into it, you know, days, nights, late nights in the lab, measurements, you know, trying to uh, reduce the noise
0: level (laughs)
1: and all of that, and the collaboration that had to go into it. And this was not something you
0: could do on your own.
1: No, no, no. I mean, you really, we really needed to collaborate with some brilliant scientists uh, within IBM Research. So I think I'm very proud of that.
0: And so uh, I'd like you to school me um on the business of monetizing inventions and scientific discoveries you know as someone who I believe has you know dozens of patents under his belt I imagine you know more than a thing or two about you know the commercial aspect of taking a great idea or this amazing invention and turning it into a commercial you know a commercial success
1: Well let's put it this way I'm fortunate enough that IBM has you know teams of people who are quite good at business development you know understanding how i mean i'm a train i'm a scientist by training right so but we always had you know people who supported us from the business side of it so they know how to look at the inventions and understand the do market analysis try to understand what price points will be you know uh, will make the technology commercially viable and the type of partnerships that you need to form. In the case of uh, nanophotonics, you know, which fabs do you collaborate with? Uh, What other companies, you know, do you work with? So, you know, forming that ecosystem. So it's all of that, right? uh, It has to come together. Uh, And fortunately, within IBM, we have people who are really good at that.
0: So the business model around being a scientist with these amazing ideas with the potential to commercialize is go work for IBM
1: there you go <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, or what other place <laughs> what other place That's only. <laughs> oh i see i see oh, but i uh, i think but i mean it's it's quite instructive what you're saying in that um you the popular narratives around you know how amazing startups go from garages to like silicon valley you know and and how if you're the smart coder or this mad scientist um, with enough, you know, you know, little, with enough verve, you can, you can, you know, become a billionaire. And what I'm hearing you say is that it's a little more complicated than that and a, lo- a lot more collaborative than may- many people realize.
1: Absolutely.
0: Actually, funnily
1: enough, uh, two weeks ago, we had a workshop here. We invited some colleagues from the U.S. to do a workshop on uh, entrepreneurship for scientists and engineers. So really, there is a methodology right so you have to understand what is it that you're doing what's your goal what is uh, what kind of partnerships do you need what's a business model what's the price point you know how do you scale this? Do you have the right intellectual property? all of those things have to be thought through for an invention to have a big you know scalable impact
0: so given that are we teaching our our kids the right things, are we teaching the next generation of scientists and and, and engineers and coders, are we teaching them to adapt to this world that requires them to be so multifaceted or understand how b- the business of science and the business of tech is done? Are we, are we doing a good enough job, do you think?
1: I think we should be doing more. Like you said, I think they hear these uh, hero stories and sometimes they get overexcited and they think that, yeah, just one simple idea is going to make it. I'm going to be an overnight billionaire. I think that narrative has to change, and I think, you know, uh, we need to start thinking that there is a process. You know, there is a methodology on how you create a business and how you commercialize your ideas and how you quickly vet whether or not the idea is going to make it. I think that needs to be embedded into our curriculums. Uh, I, I specifically work closely with Vits because of our location and our partnership. I think you know we have had many of these discussions, and I think they're doing a good job. That's why we have the innovation hub right here, so that, you know... Uh, you can, can support it. Yeah, they get the right support. You know, they can go talk to an IP lawyer, they can go and talk to a business development team, they can come and talk to our scientists to see if the idea makes sense or not. So you need that ecosystem
0: and support. And thinking back to when you were uh, much younger and perhaps less seasoned, uh, are the ideas that you thought, by, you know, were going to make you a billionaire and, and never panned, at the same time, were the ideas that you thought... Were like, yeah, not you know, not amazing, but then turned into something special.
1: No, not really. I mean, uh, to be frank, I mean, I, uh, in high school and in college, I was more interested in the science uh, actually, and just just the beauty of you know knowledge. I mean, that, that's what used to inspire me. Not necessarily um, business ideas, but as I advanced in my car- my career with an IBM, I started picking up these concepts and understanding the business.
0: Do you think obsessing too much over the business side as a scientist or as a, an inventor can can inhibit the kind of openness you need to have to innovation and, and, and looking for it? and you know, to pair it with another question, do you think this mad culture that I think is led by the u s well I suppose Europe, to be fair as well, around you know securing patents and, and defending them with billions of dollars? is that helpful to innovation or harmful i I would say. I mean, it's it's helpful. I mean,
1: you, if you have the idea, you have the right to protect it. It's important, right? Protecting your idea doesn't mean that you don't get to work with you know, others. You don't, it doesn't mean that you can't license it for free, right? And so we follow quite a lot of those models. Um, so it's, it's, you know...
0: And it doesn't steal the joy out of just creating for the
1: sake of it as a scientist or as, a, as an inventor? Mean, our culture here is, look, you know we let ideas grow organically. I mean, the scientists are always talking to each other. They're talking to partners, and some beautiful ideas emerge, right? So, and you know, many of many times they're jointly owned, and and it's okay to protect those you know ideas and patents, and and then ultimately, you know, you make uh, you hopefully commercialize those ideas. So I don't think um, you know that type of IP posture uh, really kills the innovation culture. It's maybe it kills it if you really obsess on it. And in IBM research, we do not obsess on it. We obsess on beauty, beautiful ideas, creating, you know, this you know, amazing innovation on a daily basis. Sorry, that
0: was just some scientists in the corner there having some fun here at IBM. <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> so see, that's what we encourage, you know, just experiment and, you know. A joyfulness. Joyfulness, exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay, so it's downhill from here. It's been a fantastic interview, I have to say. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was fun. So, I've got a couple of questions. It was fun for me too, by the way. So, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, Are you into podcasts at all? No. I mean, sometimes I listen. And when you do, what are you listening to? Uh, Politics. Oh, really? All right. All right. You're the thinker, consummate thinker, even when it comes to podcasts.
1: No, I think politicians are entertaining comedians.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What's the meal you have most often? Steak. I love steak. Really? Like how? And how do you have it? Uh, medium. Oh, medium, right? All right. Do you cook? I used to.
1: Uh, unfortunately, I don't get that much time to cook now. But I, it's, uh, there's something therapeutic about cooking. Um, have you ever jumped from a plane?
0: I've thought about it. And <laughs> again, the thinker, the thinker vibe comes in. And what, what did you? What did you come to? <laughs>
1: Uh, I st- maybe never
0: <laughs> it might happen I don't know we'll see <laughs> <laughs> and finally is there a question I haven't asked that you wish I had
1: I think you have covered a lot I mean maybe you know what I'm hopeful about
0: right so that's that's a really good one um, what does uh, what does Solomon hope for
1: I, I think you know now what really kind of uh, makes me wake up early or you know makes me work quite a very hard is uh, when I see the young innovators and the young scientists and uh, I, I truly believe that they do have the power to transform the continent. So that's why I came back to the continent and I'm very hopeful that we'll be at a very different place a decade from now.
0: Here, here. Thank you so much for speaking to me.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Africa Conversations